Stanley Tookie Williams was born in 1953 in Louisiana. He was abandoned by his father at just a year old, and him and his mother moved to South Central Los Angeles at the age of six. In LA, from a young age, Stanley became immersed in the cycles of poverty that defined his neighborhood. He grew up looking at the men who ran the streets as role models, taught and believed that it was here in the crime that riddled his neighborhood and in prisons that one could learn to be a man. From them, he learned about drugs, the drug trade, gambling, dogfighting, and he made a name for himself participating in street fights, gaining a reputation of being vicious and relentless. His fearlessness, street smarts, and knack for violence eventually earned him respect in local gangs. And by the age of 15, he was leading his own crew which landed him in juvenile detention. But upon his release in 1971, at the age of just 17, he and his friend created the gang that would become the Crips on the east side of South Central LA, one of the most notorious gangs of his era. Throughout the 70s, as their de facto leader, he spent the decade building up the Crips as a powerful crime entity in LA engaging in everything from drug running to robberies to the violent elimination of rival gangs, the consolidation of power, empire building that darkly he pursued while working as an anti-gang youth counselor in Compton. And the outcomes of this life were disastrous. Personally, he became addicted to PCP. He was shot in a drive-by at one point, he even found himself in a psychiatric hospital after a breakdown. And over the decade, he grew increasingly unstable. And societally, he helped create one of the most violent gangs in LA, as well as one of the most destructive LA gang rivalries to date, the war between the Crips and the Bloods. That is, until 1979, when he was convicted of murdering four people during two robberies and was sentenced to death. And though he claimed he was not the shooter in those particular murders, it's impossible to deny that he was at the center or ordered many others. No matter how you cut it, Stanley spent his young adult life orchestrating violence and human suffering. And I want to stick a pin in Stanley's story. You see, during this Advent season, where we anticipate Jesus Christ's arrival on Christmas and reflect on what it means for us in our world, E3 has been sitting with human stories. And through them, we've been asking these questions. What might Christ's arrival mean for the people behind these stories and those like them? How might it offer hope to people in despair, peace for people facing uncertainty and anxiety, joy for people who've experienced great loss. All important stories, but also all stories of people who, if I'm being honest, are easy to love, easy to empathize with, to root for, easy to want Christ to arrive and to offer them good news. But today I start with Stanley, who might be called by some of us a monster or even irredeemable, because I want to ask, what might Christ's arrival offer to someone like him? 
Someone whose past choices have caused such pain. What does Advent say to those who are buried under guilt and shame from their past? And how might it change how we think about them and respond to them in the present? Questions like these. See, I believe these questions will be addressed in this week's Advent theme of love. In the final week of our series, Jubilee, where we've been sitting with this Old Testament commandment that takes up the entire chapter of 25 from the book of Leviticus. This commandment called the year of Jubilee, where every 50 years, Israel is commanded by God to enact this year of liberty or release. In essence, over the course of this Jubilee year, there's this total reset of every part of their lives. There's this total reset in their relationship with God and the forgiveness of Israel's sins. A reset in their relationships with each other. A reset in their ownership and treatment of the land. A reset in their economic life. I'm talking about a reset in everything. And we've been exploring this radical commandment during Advent because Jesus believed the Jubilee was crucial for understanding what his arrival meant. That his story fundamentally announced an eternal Jubilee that God was bringing about right here right now. This ultimate invitation of release, liberation, and reset for anyone who longed for a fresh start. And today, we turn to Advent love through this one final piece of the year of Jubilee commandment. The command given by God to Israel that they are to forgive all debts and release anyone in servitude over the course of this 50th year. But before turning to the commandment itself, we need to begin with the intertwined nature of debt and servitude in ancient Israel. You see, Israel was an agricultural society. So for most Israelites, one's sustenance and livelihood was tied completely to the annual harvest that they got from their land, which created a very challenging reality that we need to understand before we get to the Jubilee commandment. See, just imagine this. Imagine you're a poor Israelite farmer and you know you have to get a harvest that year to get by. How do you do it? Well, each year you go through the same process. You take out a loan for seed, putting whatever you owned up as collateral to purchase enough seed for the following year, to grow enough food to live off of that year, plus extra to sell in order to pay back your debts, pay back your loan. And maybe if you're lucky, make a little profit. But what happens when for whatever reason, poor choices or disaster, your crop fails that year? Suddenly, you're facing starvation. And on top of that, you can't pay back what you owe, can you? I mean, this was a common and disastrous situation for Israelites. And God's law provides some safeguards for this reality. For example, there are commandments in God's law about caring for family members in financial crisis. There are prohibi prohibitions against charging interest on loans so you don't pile up debt on people who are in need. There are rules for selling one's land or property like Sam explored last week. But what if even those safety measures weren't enough to help you cover your debts? What do you do then? Well, there was one final desperate option you could take. 
an Israelite in crushing debt could sell themselves and their family into debt servitude under the person they owed. Essentially, they would come to that person, they would sell themselves, and for however long it took to pay back their debt, they would live under them as servants in return for food, shelter, and payments against the loan that they couldn't pay back. And though this was obviously a better option than starvation, it was a horrible situation to be in. It's almost hard for us to imagine as modern-day Americans. It's a total loss of freedom. And depending on how much debt you owed, without some sort of relief, you could find yourself and your family bound in servitude perpetually. But that is where the year of Jubilee comes into the equation. You see, we read in Leviticus 25, verse 39, this last part of this commandment. On this 50th year, read this. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as higher workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released and they're to go back to their clans and to the property of their ancestors because the Israelites are my servants who I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. I am the Lord, your God. Essentially, the indebted Israelite works until the year of Jubilee. And then regardless of the debt still owed, God commands their release from that debt and from their servitude. It's forgiven and they're set free. No questions asked. And this is wild. I mean, especially if you have even a cursory understanding of how economics work on a national level. To just erase debt like this would turn everything upside down. But can you imagine what this would mean to the person in debt? It's this promise that no matter how deep the hole they've dug, there will be a day when they and their family will be released from their past mistakes. And I love the reasoning for this commandment that we see sprinkled throughout this passage. First, God grounds it in Israel's own story, the Exodus story. That story about when Israel was bound in slavery in Egypt and God liberated them from bondage as an act of grace. The Jubilee in this fascinating way, according to God, retells and reenacts that story within Israel every 50 years. Second, we see that God seems to believe that it's a reflection of his own character. This year of remembering that God isn't defined by endless oppression and bondage. No, this God is defined by grace, mercy, liberation, forgiveness, love, the ending of slavery. And third, we see that God wants it to be a regular practice of how those two truths, their story and his character should shape their relational world. God points out, hey, a people with a story about being rescued from bondage and slavery, who follow the God that rescued them from bondage and slavery, who follow this God of grace. Well, bad news. They probably shouldn't be the same people who in turn keep others in bondage and slavery. Because if my people remember their story and get who I am, God says, then they naturally will have relationships defined in a different way. Defined by liberation rather than oppression. Defined by love rather than greed. Defined by compassion rather than brutality. They'll realize that they have no right to own someone created by God. That they have no right to abuse or condemn who and what 
God has made. The Jubilee points to this truth in a profound way. For God, the releasing of people from debt and servitude is intertwined. It's, it's just, you can't separate it from his character and his story of redemption, which should reshape his people according to him. It should make them people who change how they treat those in debt and servitude. Because people who were set free shouldn't in turn get in the business of making chains, according to this God. And thus we shouldn't be surprised that this jubilee release of debt and bondage and servitude is something that Jesus believed was central to what his arrival meant. And I want to return to the passage we actually used to begin this series. That passage from Luke chapter four about Jesus's first major public appearance when he shows up to tell the world who he is and what he's about. Because though we went through it on a cursory level, there's something that I left unpacked about this passage that I think is powerful. So Jesus is teaching and he stands up to read in the synagogue and he asks for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which is handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, when we began this series three weeks ago, we explored the, the underlying Jubilee tones of this passage. Jubilee is using this passage from Isaiah 61 to connect himself to this long awaited moment called the year of the Lord's favor. It's the promised ultimate Jubilee when God said he would arrive through his Messiah, restore his people and our world. And what we see here is that Jesus points to that scripture and says, yep, I'm the Messiah. The Jubilee has arrived, which is big enough. We already covered that, but it's a big deal. But you see, there's another part here. There's another part to what Jesus does with this passage from Isaiah 61 that's fascinating. He changes it. <gasps> you can't do that, Jesus. You can't change scripture. Well, too bad. He's the Messiah. See, what he does is interesting. First, he inserts into this passage from Isaiah 61 another sentence from Isaiah 58. This sentence to set the oppressed free. And Isaiah 58 is all about worshiping God by releasing people from bondage, taking care of the poor. Again, remember your story and who God is and then act accordingly. But then there's this other tiny change he makes. You see, in Isaiah 61, this last passage goes this way. It reads like this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. You see, in Isaiah 61, Isaiah predicts that God will bring his eternal jubilee through his Messiah to forgive Israel's sins, to restore them, to release them from bondage. And Jesus says, check, 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 I'm fulfilling that. But also in Isaiah 61 too, after this affirmation of the year of the Lord's favor, Isaiah talks about the vengeance. He longs for God to bring against Israel's enemies. And notice this, Jesus just omits that part. He doesn't include it at all. 
He only proclaims the year of the Lord's favor and he leaves out the bit about vengeance. And fun trivia, in Hebrew, the root of the word favor that we see here in Isaiah is tied to what? Ding, 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 the jubilee releasing of debt. Jesus says powerfully, I know you expect the Messiah to bring the hammer down on those bad people, but I'm announcing a very different message of good news that the Messiah has not arrived to proclaim and inflict vengeance on those you call enemies. No, I've arrived to bring about this jubilee of God's healing through the releasing of debts and the outpouring of divine love, grace, forgiveness, and mercy, not just on Israel, but on everyone. And this saturates Jesus's message. Once you see it in the gospel, you can't unsee it. Underneath so much of what he says, does, and teaches is the language of jubilee forgiving debts. When he forgives sins, he uses the language of forgiving that person of a debt that they feel tied to, releasing them from the bondage of their past. When he teaches about how we are to respond to God's grace and forgiveness, he tells a parable about a servant who has a massive debt that gets forgiven, but then refuses to forgive another servant of their debts to him. And Jesus says in this parable, the unforgiving servant is the one whose heart is farthest from God. When he teaches his disciples to pray daily, what does he tell them to pray? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Even his healings use the language of release, the release of physical bondage. All these things are intertwined in Jesus's mind and underneath all of them over and over again, he uses the language of forgiveness and release from the Jubilee. Jesus believes that through him, fundamentally, we are not bound by the debts we feel our past hold. That God says you are free, released, no matter who you are or what you've done, you are loved and invited to experience this year of my favor, this eternal jubilee right here, right now. And I don't know who needs to hear that, but I know I do. See, on my own, I look at my past. I look at my mistakes and my failures, and I say, that can't be released. I see the ways in which I've hurt people as unpayable debts. And then I just get buried under guilt and shame. And I need to hear every day that when my God showed up, his first word wasn't of judgment or condemnation, but of radical jubilee love that God confronts my broken story about my past with his story about how he arrived as a human being just like me to say, I know your wrongs, I know your regrets, I know your mistakes, and I can meet you where you are at. I arrived to meet you where you are at, to tell you definitively that I look at you with favor, with love, that you are forgiven and released by grace that in my story, the other shoe isn't going to drop. This God gazes right through our failures and sees beloved children overflowing with inherent worth and redemptive 
potential. This God says to every single human being, there is nothing, nothing that cannot be redeemed by my love. And in that, I feel myself move from being fear-driven to love-drawn. That, that is Jesus' jubilee arrival. That is Advent love. And Jason makes fun of me for saying this too much, but I don't care, y'all. That is good news. That's good news. And it changes everything. Because when I acknowledge that in unconditional love, I have been forgiven much, released of much, set free of much. Well, it becomes harder for me to judge, resent, and condemn these things that break our world. It becomes harder for me to keep others in debt. It pushes me instead to be better, to face failures, not as the pathways to death, but as the pathways to redemption, to release others as I've been released, to give back the love I've been freely given. When we truly accept Jubilee and Advent love, we can't help but become it. And that's where the world changes. And if you don't believe me, well, let's return to our story about the worst of the worst, the monster, the irredeemable. In prison, Stanley Tookie Williams found redemptive love. By the love and grace of God, he discovered this invitation of jubilee release from his past, his debts, his bondage, a redemption that he determined to give away. On death row, he devoted himself to helping others escape the gangs and the cycles of violence that he had been ensnared by and that he in, in, had in turn perpetuated. He began speaking out against the gang he had formed and trying to foster peace in the war he helped start. He wrote thousands of letters to kids, adults, teachers, principals, politicians, anyone willing to listen, anyone looking to avoid his path or to help others do the same. He wrote children's books about the traps of poverty, the snares of ignorance and hate, the destruction of gang violence, the horrors of prison, and the freedom of love. Books that taught kids how to avoid his mistakes and find a better life. Books that became staples in the schools of his old neighborhoods. Work that actually got him nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize while sitting on death row. This work defined by his unshakable belief that if he could find redemption, then anyone can. And that gave him purpose, this purpose of pouring himself out in love for others. But as we often discover in this world, we very rarely live by an economy of grace. And on December 13th, 2005, Stanley was executed by the state of California by lethal injection. His last recorded words were, the war within me is over. I battled my demons and I was triumphant. 
Teach them how to avoid our destructive footsteps. Teach them to strive for higher education. Teach them to promote peace. And teach them to focus on rebuilding the neighborhoods that you, others, and I helped to destroy. When I hear this story, what I find is I return to the words of Brian Stevenson, an author and advocate against the death penalty who I admire greatly and has had a great impact on my life. In particular, I return to two writings of his that will always stick with me. The first is simple. He says, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And the second describes how realizing and accepting that fact should change us in our relational world. He writes beautifully, there is a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness. Because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy. And perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things you can't see otherwise. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. Our story, the character of our God, act accordingly. That is what it means to find the redemptive love of God, the release of Jesus's jubilee arrival. That is the invitation and call of Advent love available to us right here, right now. We would reach out and accept it. So, this Advent, are you willing to hear that truth about you and your past? Are you willing to believe that you are deeply and fully loved no matter who you are or what you've done? It can be released in this story of God. And are you willing to become someone who reflects that love of God by how you extend his jubilee invitation to others, even those you despise and resent, even those you think are monsters and irredeemable? Are you willing? Are you willing to extend jubilee release and mercy to those that, like Isaiah, you want to call down the day of God's vengeance on, even as you, someone forgiven much, rests in the year of the Lord's favor? Are you willing to love like our God loves? Reflect on that as we turn to celebrate Jesus' arrival on Christmas. And as we light our last Advent candle, the candle of love, as we light it, we think about Stanley and all of those longing for redemption, released from their past and new life through grace.
pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into the testing, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and 